Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On the Bechdel cast, the questions asked if movies have women in them. Are all their discussions just boyfriends and husbands, or do they have individualism? The patriarchy's effing vast. Start changing it with the Bechdel cast. Hey, Jamie. Hey, Caitlin. My Sharona is playing. Hey, turn it up and let's dance. Caitlin, did you know that My Sharona is a song about an underage girl? (gasps) I did not know that. Like extremely underage, like 13. Yikes. Well, well, (laughs) welcome to the Bechtel cast. (laughs) That was my, that's one of my favorite bubbles to burst not because i mean but that was something i learned while i was making lolita podcast because i was just making a super oh, list of, of course popular songs that are actually about exploiting young women yeah and my sharona is i mean look if you want to pause the podcast and take a gander at the lyrics be my guest but it is uh it is a rough road my my dad that was one of my dad's favorite songs and i was like dad you gotta you gotta take a peep at these lyrics and he was like Oh my, oh my. Oh no. Now look, this is just a sampling of <laughs> one of the elements of, of culture that maybe don't age very well. Welcome to the Bexel cast. My name is Jamie oh, Loftus. And <laughs> my name is Caitlin Durante. And this is a podcast where basically we take media that you love and uh, point out everything that's wrong with it from an intersectional feminist lens. I think that's a little harsh. We we take a look at it from an intersectional feminist lens. We're not uh, yeah. a part of the ruin everything culture. We take a look at things. That just happens sometimes as a byproduct of what we do because a lot of things kind of just ruined themselves. I guess so. <laughs> Is that fair to say? Anyway, um, so we use the Bechtel test as a jumping off point to initiate a larger conversation. And the Bechtel test, of course, is a media metric created by queer cartoonist Alison Bechtel, sometimes called the Bechtel Wallace test, originally conceived as a just kind of one off joke in a comic by Alison Bechtel called Dykes to Watch Out For. Uh, 
and has since been kind of repurposed as this media metric. There are many versions of it. The one that we use requires that two people of a marginalized gender who have names must speak to each other and their conversation has to be about something other than a man. And ideally it's a narratively meaningful conversation. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And today we have a long time request with a much beloved guest. Mm. So let's get to it. We're covering Reality Bites 1994 directed by one Ben Stiller written by one Helen Childress. Childress? Don't know. Sure. Don't. No. And we'll never know. And that's on internalized misogyny. <laughs> uh, yeah, we know how to pronounce Ben Stiller's name. Makes you think. Okay. Uh, so let's get our wonderful returning guest in here. Indeed. She is the host of the podcast, There Are No Girls on the Internet. Woof. She's the host of the new podcast, Internet Hate Machine, Woof. on Cool Zone Media. Check it out. And you remember her from our episode on Eve's Bayou. It's Bridget Todd. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you for bringing us Reality Bites. I'm very excited to to discuss this movie that you have brought us. I feel like this movie is very often held up as like, this is the Gen X movie, which as many, you know, and we can bitch all day about Gen X and we will, but I will say it must suck as a generation to be told like this is you whether you like it or not like Mm -hmm. i don't think that millennials really have a movie that is like made like this is your defining thing i think i would resent it on uh i would just resent it automatically so to our gen x listeners um, whether you like this movie or, or or not i think it's just i feel like it's the only generation i know of that is like there's one movie about Gen X and it involves one of the most toxic relationships I've ever seen committed to film. Oh my goodness. It's like, oh brother. Um, that said, I'm excited to discuss this movie. There were elements of it I liked uh, very much. Yeah. So Bridget, yeah. to kick us off, what is your history with Reality Bites? Oh, I have a long history with this movie. That's why I suggested it. I mm-hmm. loved it when I first saw it. I saw it as a young person Maybe I saw it in high school. I even had the soundtrack mm-hmm. that I bought from the Salvation Army, which the soundtrack slaps. <gasps> it's an iconic it soundtrack. It really mm-hmm. is. Yeah, I, I loved it. And I also think it was a movie that when I was young in the suburbs, I thought when I'm an adult, this my life's going to be like this. It's going to be cool, creative young people hanging around in a group house, you know, smoking weed out of cans and quipping with each other. <laughs> I, it really presented a, a a life that I found aspirational at the time. Mm-hmm. Sure. And it's funny because watching it now, I'm like, thank God that wasn't my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not a great fate, uh, as it turns out. Yeah, Jamie, what is your relationship and history with this movie? Um, I don't have much of a history with it. I had never seen it before. It never really, it never came across my desk as a youth. Sure. I have worked with one of the producers of this movie before, Stacey Schurz. She's really, really awesome. So I'm coming in a little bit biased here because I just think that she's like championed so many uh, movies that center women and uh, queer mm-hmm. stories. And like she, she's done a, a lot of really, really cool work. Um, but I'd never actually like sat with this movie before and watched it. And honestly, I was coming in thinking maybe I wouldn't 
like it very much at all. Mm-hmm. They're definitely like, I mean, I, I think that this movie, like, duh, I didn't know much about the history. I didn't know it was like written by a young woman that is like very much pulling from her own experience, mm-hmm. which I think is really cool. And especially in 1994 would have been super rare. Yeah. And then uh, just like, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> my main issue with this movie, which I'm sure we'll be talking about, is it's like hyper focus on this shitty relationship that I I mean and amongst other things but it felt like there were a lot of things this that this movie was commenting on that even when characters suck they sucked contextually in a way that felt like there's a lot of satire and a lot of commentary on like why people are making the choices they are like Mm -hmm. no characters goes completely uncriticized by the movie except for like this relationship that I just am like oh um, but but I'm very excited to talk about it. I feel like there's a lot of um, it. It resonated more than I was expecting it to for me. Mm-hmm. Caitlin, what is your history with Reality Bites? I honestly am not sure if I had seen it before because there were parts that were very familiar to me. The my Sharona scene in particular, I that scene is really fun. Like, it is. Uh, But what I remember even more than them dancing to that song was the line where they're like, Avion is naive, spelled backwards. I don't know why. (laughs) The most corny (laughs) Gen X line ever. Why did I remember that so much? I'm not sure. I think there's a very real possibility that I had only ever seen that scene probably from that movie trivia game seen it oh my god and that's just why i remember seen it that's the millennials true movie (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) oh you just unlocked a memory for me of how much i love seen it and i haven't played it in years seen it kind of rules yeah yeah Um, oh yeah (laughs) that's so much cultural osmosis um maybe Mm. that maybe i had seen that scene that way too also this is like janine garofalo being I, i was like that's the true harbinger of of a gen x um classic is like janine garofalo in a supporting role mm-hmm. done oh yeah done. yeah we've done it that's how you know yeah um but yeah the rest of the movie wasn't super familiar to me so i think i hadn't actually seen the whole thing and it was just that scene in the gas station that i saw and then thought i had seen the whole movie not really sure <laughs> so yeah uh not super familiar with this movie but but there's a lot to talk about there is <laughs> This is not the primary thing to talk about, but I didn't know Steve Zahn was in this movie. And as a known mm. Zahn head, I was ah. like, well, 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 look who we have here. <laughs> Steve Zahn. I love Steve Zahn so much. The fact that anyone would say in a movie that no one wants to have sex with Steve Zahn. I'm like, you're going to want to check your notes on that one. I do. <laughs> I love Steve Zahn. Do you remember when he played the cat? <laughs> Stuart, and Little. Stuart Little yeah. of course I remember when he played yes. the cat in Stuart Little yeah he played Nathan Lane's best friend and his only line was snowball you're my best friend god I he's so delightful it's such a delight when he like no one's ever sad to see Steve Zahn he's such mm-hmm. a delight what was your is that your favorite Steve Zahn movie Stuart Little yes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think of where I first fell in love with Steve Zahn it would have been I remember this is I don't think where I fell in love with him, but he was in a Kristen early Kristen Stewart movie called Speak, which is about a very traumatic. It's very traumatic. Mm. Um, But Steve Zahn plays 
the nice teacher of a middle schooler who experiences pretty horrific abuse. And so Steve Zahn, you're like, oh, nice, Mr. He's just always Mr. Nice. He's always he Mr. Nice. is Mr. Nice. He he cannot play a villain. Um, I Except first, in White Lotus, where he definitely does. Oh, that's I didn't finish that series. Um, yeah. I first saw him in the movie Joyride. What's that? Oh, yeah. It's basically a remake of the movie Duel, where a scary truck driver terrorizes Steve Zahn, Paul Walker, and Lily Sobieski. All right. And it's pretty cool. What else is... Steve Zahn <laughs> is also in You've Got Mail. I think maybe that's the last time I got thrilled to see him on the show in a movie I otherwise mm. did not like. It's funny. <laughs> I'm looking at his IMDb. Uh, Reality Bites was only the, like, the fourth movie he had ever been in. He was in an episode oh, of wow. All My Children, a, movie, a TV movie called First Love, Fatal Love, another movie called Rain Without Thunder, an episode of a show called South Beach, and then Reality Bites. Like, that was his, this was like early Steve Zahn. This was his break, this big break. I read that, because the, the casting process for, I mean, the production of this movie is just like wild in general. Yeah. But I, I read that Ethan Hawke had just like done a play with Steve Zahn and was like, he's cool, bring him on. <laughs> yeah. And then Steve Zahn, being Mr. Nice, um, was really enthusiastic about playing a uh, queer character who is like, who comes out of the closet and is loved and accepted for it mm-hmm. because he's Mr. Nice. So Mr. Nice. the only movie I've ever seen him being not nice in is um, a perfect getaway. He's like, I don't want to spoil it, but it's got, uh, I think Mila Jovovich maybe. Uh, and he's mm. very much the villain, like not just like oh, no. the villain, like in white Lotus where it's like, Oh, he's rich and has a lot of privilege. Like a villain villain, oh, like a bad guy. <laughs> Good for him. He's got range. I also remembering he's Mr. Nice in, I don't know if anyone else was a babysitter and saw the Diary of a Wimpy Kid movie series, but he's <laughs> he's Mr. Dad in that one. And mm. yeah, sure, he makes some mistakes, but at the end of the day, he's Mr. Nice. <laughs> well, shall we move on from Steve Zahn? The Zahnacents. <laughs> <laughs> The beginning of the Zonnesense is uh, in this movie. This is a feminist movie podcast, which you wouldn't have guessed from that conversation. <laughs> Our five-minute okay. tirade about Steve Zahn. About how he's nice. Yeah, let's uh, recap the movie, shall we? Let's do it. Okay. So we open on Lelena. That's Winona Ryder. She's giving a speech at her college graduation, which effectively sets up the theme of the movie, which is like, hey, there are all these problems in the world, but what do we do about them? I don't know. Right. <laughs> the, the, I like how every generation will, especially now that like we're no longer the youngest generation and we're growing crustier with each passing day, I do think it's like funny how that this is the question of literally every generation, but everyone is like, but it was my idea. <laughs> We're kind of the first people to have this problem. And it's like, wow, mm-hmm. damn, getting old is punishing. It was not our idea. <sighs> nope, it was And not. we are also fumbling it. So amazing. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So then we see video footage because Lelena is making a documentary about her friends. Her friends are... Troy Dyer, that's Ethan Hawke. Hot. Mm, his character's despicable. Um, his character's horrible. Yeah, yeah. Vicky, that's Janine Garofalo. Hot. And Sammy, Steve Zahn of Steve Zahn. the Zonnocence. Hot. <laughs> There's, a, a, I just, I'm going to be annoying today. Um, <laughs> there was, I, I was thinking of 
just like other very Gen X-y movies and things in general. And I was thinking about Rent, which I feel Mm. like also goes in this category very much. Also features, I think, a visibly terrible documentary about someone's (gasps) friends. It was a very 90s Mm. thing to do, to think that you were... I mean, I guess it's like how millennials and Gen Z use social media to be like, get ready with me. And it's like, God, everyone's so fucking boring. We all have the same instincts. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that (laughs) to document our lives and make them public. I do think that Winona Ryder's fake documentary in Reality Bites seems more interesting than Anthony Rapp's fake documentary in Rent. That's my professional opinion. No question. (laughs) I mean, his documentary is just videoing his. I mean, Lelena is like asking them questions about like, what's it like to be worried about AIDS. What's it like to do this? Like she's asking them their perspective. Yeah. The mm-hmm. documentary, if I, I haven't seen Rent in a long time, so excuse me if I'm misremembering, but if I recall correctly, he's just like got a camera in his friends' faces and they're just living their lives. Mm. Yeah, he's trying to do a more like, I'm just like, is who's getting releases for these things? <laughs> Logistically, like who is getting releases for this? Yeah, he was just bringing his camera to like, like support groups in a way that you're like this is illegal right mark blowing this person's anonymity or whatever right yeah sheesh anyways here's they both probably would suck but i think winona's Mm. is is more interesting and it seems like at least everyone is willingly participating (laughs) most of the time here's my hot and potentially terrible take is that the tv network in your face version of Winona's footage, I think is like not that bad. Totally agree. I'm so glad. I was that was I was gonna totally say the same thing. I (laughs) thank you. Honestly, I don't. I I truly. So I'm sure we'll get to this, and maybe I'm jumping the gun. But the scene when they show it, I was like. It just seems like the bumper or the teaser. Like you don't even. What what was so bad about it that they like? I, I truly don't get it. Okay, my as I was watching that, I was like. How different is this from the trailer to Reality Bites? It's pretty Mm -hmm. similar. It's very similar. But that's like, I feel like that's kind of like one of the bizarro, like, I mean, I know the word irony is used really heavily in this movie, but that's like kind of the (laughs) weird irony of this movie is like, it's a movie about selling out, but like you would have had to have sold out in order for it to be made. It's a studio movie. (laughs) Right. I don't know, Jamie. Define irony. (laughs) I, you can't. It's undefinable. <laughs> I literally, I was, as she was fumbling with that, I was like, oh, I would have, uh, I would not have been able to do that either. <laughs> I would have fucked it up. I also think that what uh, Ethan Hawke's character's definition is like also not quite the right definition of irony. Was this before or after the Alanis Morissette song? <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> this, that's a great question. This exchange was, I was like, could no one in this generation correctly define that word? We don't know. <laughs> Uh, anyway, okay. So Lilena is making this documentary about her friends. We see footage of them talking. They're goofing around. They're speaking on their lives and their future plans. And they all seem kind of aimless and they, they're not really sure what to do or how to proceed. Then we cut to Lilena having dinner with her parents. Her dad gives her a gas card, which he says he'll pay the bill on for a year. He also gives her his old BMW. There's some debate about whether or not she should take the BMW because she mentioned being morally opposed to BMWs in her graduation speech. But ultimately, she takes the car. Yeah. And... (laughs) 
loaded loaded the privilege these kids have um i know yeah so then lelena uh we see her at her job as a i think production assistant on a morning talk show for fraser's dad yes (laughs) oh my god right second only the two times i gasped no three times i gasped first steve zahn reveal second fraser's dad reveal third she chooses Ethan Hawke reveal just mm-hmm. just just but <laughs> Frasier's dad absolutely killing in this movie and his character is a mean old jerk Ugh. we learn just like in Frasier except mm. in Frasier it's complicated <laughs> he's a, I mean he's, he's a like, big old softy he's like a mm-hmm. softy that we love but he does run for like an ex- like an extreme like he doesn't even vote for like an extremist candidate and might have some uh, not so great political positions. <laughs> I would not because I think isn't he like a former cop? Like it, yes. it, in fridge, you're you're like I don't want to know how this guy votes, but I do love the um, just the character setup of I love my fancy sons, <laughs> <laughs> my fancy lad sons. My mm. I love my weird fancy sons. I'm like well. Someone's gotta. A little aside, I I only I wa- I watched Frasier for the first time in the pandemic, and my partner loves the show. And I was like, oh, isn't it about a gruff guy who has two sons who are British for some reason? And he was like, no, they're not British. They're just fancy. <laughs> I always, for whatever reason, I just assumed they were British. I would say that Kelsey Grammer and David Hyde Pierce do sort of affect a like movie-like transatlantic accent yes. for their roles. It's not for sure. They don't sound like they're from Seattle. They sound like Rose DeWitt Picator from Titanic. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they sound yeah, they sound like they're from a place that never existed. But I mean, look, the Fraser reboot. Hmm. Goddamn if I'm not going to watch it. They shut down one of my favorite local bars to film Fra- which is weird. Wait, that's a, like a, a thing that's happening, a Fraser reboot. Oh, yeah. I don't know about this. <gasps> There's going to be a Frasier reboot, and they shut down this bar near me called the Thirsty Crow, which is like a mm. fun but like grimy little bar. I was like, what is Frasier going to do there? Get killed? Like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so so we see Lelena at her job. Then she gets into a minor car accident with this guy named Michael, played by Ben Stiller, and they meet via this car accident, and they kind of hit it off. And he asks her for a date. Uh. Meanwhile, Troy slash Ethan Hawke has been fired from his newsstand job for eating a Snickers bar. Mm. So he has to move into Lelena and Vicky's apartment and he crashes on the couch for a while. We also learn more about the dynamic between Troy and Lelena, which is a bit contentious. It's a bit will they or won't they? Mm. The friends are are hanging out. We see more documentary footage. Lelena and Vicky and Sammy dance to My Sharona in the convenience store. Troy is like, I'm too cool to dance. And you're like, shut up. Troy. I hate I hate him. <laughs> Can't stand Troy. <laughs> Awful. Can't stand. He remind I'm discovering that a lot of nineties Ethan Hawk characters are really deplorable because Before Sunrise is one of my favorite movies. But I went back and rewatched that recently. I was like, oh my God, his character is awful in that movie. Really? He gets a little more mature in Before Sunset, but... I still haven't seen it. I mean, it's like there's... I, I'm... It's, it's so confusing. I wish I could... Was anyone able to find, like... Because I read that this script was 
written like 70 times so it sounds like there was like studio notes on notes on notes on notes Mm -hmm. um so i'm just like because it seems like the final script goes all the way up to like yeah fuck this guy but then at the last second it's like nah he's great he's great and you gotta marry him (sighs) and i was like that has to be a studio notes like i cannot Mm -hmm. conceive of a world because it's like the movie goes all the like she does the she does the right thing. She bails. Yeah. Anyways, mm. we'll get Frustrating. there. <laughs> yeah. So then Lelena goes on her date with Michael, a.k.a. Ben Stiller. They make out, which Troy sees, and he gets upset about this. And he picks a fight with Lelena. And she's like, if you have a problem, just say it. And he's like, I love you. And it seems like he's being sincere, but it turns out he's just being an asshole, even though it is clear that he is in love with her. But he won't admit it. He is so annoying. Can I can I ask a question there? Because that's something in rewatching this movie, I was sort of like, what is this? And I and I know people are complicated, <laughs> and I've certainly been there. Sure. What is the vibe of like being in love with each other? It's also implied that they've hooked up drunkenly at least once in the past. At least once. Mm-hmm. What like why are they so against admitting it, talking about it, communicating about it? Like. I understand that in in, in this in the universe of the film, it's supposed to be like they can't admit it. You know, they don't don't want to ruin the friendship. Why not? Like, why is communicating openly about how you feel such a villain in in the universe of this film? I feel like I, my assumption was like they're twenty two and extremely emotionally <laughs> immature. <laughs> like that was sort of my and like especially Troy. Like I mean, we can we'll talk about Elena and all the ways where like she's very messy and a lot of regards um especially Mm -hmm. with like her own privilege and like she's oh yeah just like bad at navigating it but like troy especially i feel like he's like i don't know like i'm trying i was uh, watching this movie i was thinking all this bad advice my mom has given me at different points in my life (laughs) but where she's like well sometimes like people run away because they know that they can't handle a relationship even if they care about you and i was like yeah, like I can sort mm-hmm. of see that in Troy of like he knows he's a piece of shit mm-hmm. to some extent. And like even if you love someone and you know you're a piece of shit, but it's then <laughs> but then he's also so unwilling to work on himself that you're just like Right. I don't know. I don't know. What do you guys think? Well, I would have definitely had the hots for Ethan Hawke's character when I was in my early 20s. No question. I would have <laughs> let him fuck up my life, fuck up my credit, crash on my couch. No question in my mind, I would have gotten sucked up in that Troy tornado happily. I would have been in love with Steve Zahn, and then he would have come out to me, and then I would have been like, I'm happy for you. And then I would have cried for weeks. (laughs) (laughs) And then we would have been friends forever. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, I don't get the whole, oh, we love each other, but we refuse to admit it thing. I mean, I do, but... For me, at least, if I like someone romantically, I go out of my way to tell them. See, I will I will be quiet about it forever. So I do understand, wow. like, where he's coming from. But also, but, but I feel like that gets conflated with, like, and so he's allowed to be an asshole and neg everything she says. It's like, well, it's one thing to not express your romantic feelings to someone, but that doesn't automatically translate to, like, and you get to be an evil villain because you right. can't... Ex- but mm. I feel like that's where a lot of the um, masculine issues uh, that Troy has. Yeah. That's where a lot of them live. The film really, like, validates his antisocial 
dick behavior. And it's supposed to be like, well, he's an artist. He's tortured. He's emotionally unavailable. And we're supposed to not find that problematic as the viewer. We're supposed to like empathize for him being in that state as opposed to be like, well, you're an adult and you are responsible for communicating the way that you feel. And if you can't, we're not all supposed to find it charming or whatever. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's like, there are moments where Lainey like does explicitly say that where she's just like, Oh, you're a fucking artist. Then like, where's the art at? Like, what are you doing? (laughs) Wait, you don't do shit. Like she calls him out on his shit, but then like the, Mm. But then she just ends up with him anyways. And the I don't ugh, it is a tricky movie because sometimes you're like, you know, there's a lot of criticisms I would have of these characters. And I'm like, yeah, I probably did something like that when I was 22. I probably did something emotionally volatile and weird. Um, <laughs> but right. it's ugh, it's tricky. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this through line in the movie or this kind of like subplot where Vicky we learn that she has a lot of casual sex and then she becomes worried that she is HIV positive because a friend of hers tested positive for HIV. So we see her going to get tested. We then see a scene where Lelena's boss, AKA Mr. Fraser's dad is an asshole to her. So she retaliates by humiliating him on air, which gets her fired. So now she's worried about money. She's worried about paying rent. Troy Mm -hmm. consoles her. And in so doing, he surprise kisses her. And she's like, no, it'll ruin our friendship. And also, I'm dating Michael. Dude, Troy's ability to make anything and everything about himself is Mm -hmm. um, infuriating. Staggering. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Meanwhile, Lilena shows Michael her documentary. And he is like a VP of programming for this TV network similar to MTV called In Your Face. And he thinks this documentary would be great programming for the network. But Lilena isn't sure about that. Um, we also see Troy uh, after having been rejected by Lilena. He's being pretty distant. Then we see Lilena trying to get a new job in television, but she can't get hired for anything. She then considers a hot dog job. I Shout know. out to Jamie's uh, hot dogs. David Spade hot dog cameo? Hello. <laughs> oh, and I also like that she can't hack it in the world of hot dogs. She's right. That I found to be good hot dog representation of like mm. not just anyone can work in hot dogs which is true it's true and on the other end i appreciate that there's a through line with laney that she is a smart and creative young woman who is constantly thwarted by being bad at math um <laughs> uh, like, don't oh. we know that <laughs> yeah i was like i know this i know this struggle i know this pain bad at math <laughs> bad at money mm-hmm. numbers in general are not her strong suit like no yeah. way either let's be real could either of you two add two numbers like that in your head? Like he, th- he, th- I, he throws her like 316 plus 29. Like you couldn't <laughs> add that in your head quickly without a piece of paper, right? Right. Right. And she also like, I, I do like how, I mean, like Winona Ryder's the best. Like I love how this character like just buckles under like one millis thing of pressure at any time they're like define a word she's like and like explodes and then he's like what's two plus two and she's like i don't know (laughs) that is that does have my favorite line of the whole movie when she can't add the numbers that she's guessing and david spade is like it's not an auction auction. (laughs) and then that that scene i mean it is a well-written movie like the the line that it ends on where he's like 
look, I've been at this job for six months for a reason. (laughs) (laughs) That's honestly the funniest scene in the movie. Hot dog. Hot dog. Mm. The scene that precedes that, we'll talk about, but there's some really fucked up ableist language and ideology that's happening there. Yes. Okay. So... Lelena, she's struggling to get a new job. She's bumming around for a while. Then she calls a psychic hotline and racks up a huge phone bill. So now she has to figure out how to pay it off and get her life back on track. So she basically Mm -hmm. starts running a scam where she pays for people's gas with her dad's gas card, but makes the customers give her cash. So she's collecting the cash, knowing that her dad will pay off the gas card. And that's how she like earns enough money to pay for this phone bill. She she taps <laughs> in and out of her privilege. Mm-hmm. It's wild. It's wild. Yeah. So then Michael tells Lelena that his network wants to buy her documentary and make it a series. Um, and she's very excited about that because she's like, this will solve my money problems. And then Michael and Troy argue because Troy is being an asshole and he's like, you don't know what Lelena needs and Michael's like I know what she needs in a way that you never will and you're like oh my god put your dicks away and stop trying to measure them Ugh. and then and then the fact that they go back for round two before the end of the movie I'm like <laughs> you guys this is such a bad look <laughs> she shouldn't pick I th- I was really hoping she would do the thing where she is like wait a second i'm 22 i picked nobody i picked myself (laughs) right right yeah yeah sex in the city finale style (laughs) i mean i i do i in the universe of this film i always wonder is michael such a bad guy like what did he do that was other than with the movie like what did he do that was so wrong i have the same thoughts Ooh, i don't hate michael i think it's very interesting that the movie seems to want i mean i feel like we're supposed to dislike michael because he works for a corporation yeah which, he's like a yuppie sellout yeah he's a yuppie sellout but the the messaging of this movie is so muddled where it's like it's okay if some people are sellouts but it's not okay if other people are mm-hmm. again i just like it makes me want to read earlier drafts of this movie because i found michael to be a pretty sympathetic character and mm-hmm. i liked that the movie went out of its way to characterize him as like a guy that had dreams but was bad at math and like he's all like i don't know i it, it's so weird because you put yourself in gen x brain and we you know we all work for fucking iheart radio we don't have a leg to stand on yeah, when it comes to like being yuppie fucking sellouts here we are not even a little bit i take my i'm i am i have a price people have met it right. <laughs> you know what can i say right like and and it's like a very 22 year old mentality I, and i don't even mean that in a negative way i think like young people being vehemently anti-capitalist is always a net good thing but it, but mm-hmm. to put all of the evils of capitalism onto like one Ben Stiller who's the only person in the movie or the only man in the movie who seems to a be willing to apologize for when he fucks up yeah. and be like accept Lainey's decisions and mm-hmm. like seems to like genuinely respect and love her yeah I, I i felt like a sellout for kind of being like is he that bad <laughs> but like is he same i don't know are we are we old by saying is he that bad but i don't think he's that bad he is sweet to her troy 
treats her like shit like there's a notable difference in the way that like those two guys treat her and i also feel like he's you know he like wants to siphon off corporate money to get her art out into the world which again you would think is exactly what's happening by reality by its being made and Mm -hmm. by producers championing this young writer and like so there's right. all these like interesting parallels that I'm like, mm-hmm. I don't hate Michael. I understand people's criticisms of him, like sure. ideologically, but like he seems like a pretty nice guy. I don't know. Yeah, I would let him take me to the aquarium restaurant. <laughs> I'm just saying. Watching this when I was in high school, when I first watched it, I was mm-hmm. like, oh, he's such a yuppie fuck. <laughs> Troy for, is the the is clearly the right match for her. Watching it recently in my 30s, I was like, that Michael seems like a nice guy. Probably got a 401k, <laughs> taking her to dinner. Right. Stable um, guy. I, like, <laughs> I literally was like, dude, I don't know. I was like, at this point, I'm like, you can't be emotionally abusive and make me pay your rent. Like, pick <laughs> a fucking lane, man. And uh, like... Ugh. Anyways, he really I think he really has Troy's number in that scene where he's trying when they have their second confrontation, like you're like the jester, like holding a skull, like it comes (laughs) out terribly. But I think that he really is the only person in the movie who really sees Troy for who he actually is, which is just somebody who wants to make crass jokes while really offering not a lot himself. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And I also was like, would I ultimately date a guy fumbling that hard to make a Hamlet reference? Yes, of course I would. <laughs> Where he's like, in the clown and the skull, and he's alone. You're like, yeah, man. Uh, yeah. Okay, we're all, I guess we're all on Team Michael. Doesn't feel like a great place to be, but what's the alternative? No, but here we are. Yeah, <laughs> apparently it's 1994. She has to end up with What's a guy by the end of man. the movie. Right. There's no alternative. So <sighs> these are the choices. Yeah. Okay. So speaking of selling out, Lelena sees what the <laughs> In Her Face Network did to her documentary footage, which basically makes a mockery of her and her friends. And so she's furious and she storms out. Back home, she and Troy talk and he's like, I do love you for real this time. And then they smooch and then they frick. But then the next morning, Troy is very distant and he bails and Lelena goes to his show that night, I think, where Michael shows up and apologizes to Lelena for the whole network mishap. He's like, let's go to New York and we'll show the network, the the series, the way that you want it to be. But then Troy pops up and he's like, I panicked this morning. And yeah, I know I'm an asshole, but I'm the only real thing you have. Oh, my God. That <laughs> speech, a legendary, a legendarily oh. bad. And she, well, this is like what what drives me up a wall about this movie is she reacts appropriately. She's like, go fuck yourself. Yes. Because he literally is like, yeah, I'm going to treat you bad. Yeah, I'm going to disappear out of nowhere. Yeah, I don't mm-hmm. play by anyone's rules and I don't respect you. God. <laughs> but I love you, you bitch. And I was like, dude, oh my God. Can you imagine if a man like said that to you all defiantly, expecting you to like marry him because of that speech or something or like run away with him? Yeah. The audacity of straight men let me tell you oh my god it never ends i was i was a pretty exceptionally um 
bad decision maker at 22 but even <laughs> i wouldn't have gone for that bullshit he's he's literally telling on himself in a in a way that it's like almost doing her a favor because then you're like okay you're telling me who you are yeah now i can walk away right there has to be a version of this movie where she walks away like i would hope so what the hell do right. you think it's like one of those situations like I think, was it Pretty in Pink or 16 Candles where there's two, apparently two versions where she mm. chooses the one guy and then she chooses the other. Like audiences didn't like it. Like, do you think there's a cut of the script somewhere where she doesn't choose him? I think it's Pretty in Pink. I'm guessing if there were 70 drafts, the coin couldn't have flipped in his favor in all 70, right? I don't know. <laughs> you would think, right? Yeah. Anyway, point is that this love triangle slash like competition between Troy and Michael for Lelena's affection. It's like reaching its peak here. Then mm. Troy leaves town. We find out it's because his father passed away, but he doesn't really tell Lelena that he's leaving. And so she's looking for him. She's thinking about him. She's moping around. And then Sammy's like, Oh no, Troy went to Chicago. So she's about to like go after him. But before she can, Troy shows up at her doorstep and he's like, I love you and I wish I had behaved differently the morning after we smooched and fricked mm. and then they smooch again and then we flash forward in time they are together it seems like they live together and then the movie ends with Lelena's dad calling and being like why is there a $900 bill on my gas card yeah the end can I say something about that yes. because the scene where okay they they smooch and they frick he wakes up, feels weird, bails. Okay. Mm -hmm. Then Lainey is like, where is he? There's like a montage where it's like that sad U2 song is playing. And it's like, mm -hmm. have you seen him? Like she's like going to all his old haunts and like finding his laundry. And then yeah. Steve Zahn is like, oh, his dad is sick. He's in Chicago. Ever heard of a fucking phone? Like, I guess I feel like. I mean, he does call her, but then he's like, I can't. Oh, that's right. I hate it. Yeah. I hate it. It's like, I guess I just feel like in the universe of the film, him not being able to physically express himself verbally, even just to be like, yo, my dad is really sick. I'm going to be gone for a couple of days. Let's talk to mm -hmm. you then. I know things are weird. When he shows up unexpectedly at her door, we're supposed to be like, wow, this is so heavy. And in reality, it's like he just skipped town for a legitimate reason, but couldn't even leave her a, a voicemail letting her know. Like, mm -hmm. and, and why, I guess I feel like, why is it treated as deep in the movie or like, like a weighty emotional choice. All he had, like, he couldn't leave a message. Right. Mm. And then him showing back up is like, oh my gosh, it's so romantic that he just showed up on her doorstep and professed his love after he's been an asshole to her for the entire movie. Which is like, it's so, <laughs> it's such an abrupt way to end it because it's like, if there was a draft of the script produced where the fact, like it's, it's referenced twice early in the movie that Troy is dealing with a terminally ill parent mm -hmm. and like the I can't imagine thankfully I can't imagine the existential stress that comes with that especially when you're so young mm -hmm. like that is a real thing that I'm sh sure I mean like causes people to act out and like you yeah. know like that grieving process is a real thing but like there's no emphasis put on it and it's made to seem like well because the horrible thing happens that excuses how poorly he's treated people this entire movie mm -hmm. when it's like there's I don't know like I always I, we've talked about this a bunch on the show but there's like such a dearth of like movies that address 
grief in a in a thoughtful way and it's like that there is an opportunity to like explore it with Troy's character but like it just doesn't really go there because it's like you obviously like feel for him he's lost a parent but it doesn't mean that he hasn't been treating Lainey like shit seemingly before his dad was even sick like it seems like he's just been an at like he's an asshole going through something horrible yeah that's an interesting thing to explore Mm. but you can't just like forgive the behavior I don't know he does nothing to redeem himself (laughs) that's exactly it we we as the audience never see him like what is the thing that we don't see him grappling with any of that like coming to realize you know I have treated her badly and I I have like not treated her the way that I wanted to treat her and you know I've learned from my behavior you don't you don't see any of that Mm -hmm. you know where you just are meant to be like oh his dad passed away that was some sort of emotional block or weight lifted. And now he's going to show up at her door and she's going to be thrilled to have him. Like, mm-hmm. I, I think if the movie had shown us a little bit or like built, like built that out a little bit more, I would be more willing to accept it. Also, side note, Jamie, how many beverages do you have? Because I've seen now the coffee, okay, whatever's in the okay, can, the Pepsi. Okay. Hold like, out. <laughs> this is, oh, I'm, I'm impressed. Look, I am impressed. Look, we've got, we've got three, we've got three on rotation right now. <laughs> Pretty cool. Are, is, are any of them Diet Cokes? Because you know who loves a Diet Coke? Oh, oh you fucking know. <laughs> Jamie's got a Diet Coke. I was like, wow, quirky white girl drinks too many big gulps. Someone has my fucking number. Like, <laughs> ridiculous. By the way, we need to take a quick break and then <laughs> we will come right back. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. Just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. 
because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back, and we're so hydrated, and we're doing great. I would say that most, actually, that the, the things I'm drinking are not contributing to hydration. <laughs> um, by the time this episode comes out, I, I will have already said something about it, but I've been working at um, a haunted hayride, mm-hmm. and so I just, I forgot I had all all of my last night's hayride beverages, and so I've just kind of been <laughs> draining them throughout the morning and afternoon. Beautiful. Um, so we we've we started talking about the Lelena slash Troy slash Michael love triangle. Mm-hmm. What else needs to be said about that? Yeah, let's let's kind of tackle that. So I, I this kind of gets into my curiosity about like how this movie was written and and made. Mm-hmm. Okay, so a lot of this revolves around the writer H- Helen Childress or Childress. I'm. Mm-hmm. Truly not totally sure. But there's a there is a piece that came out a couple years ago from Atlantic writer Soraya Roberts, mm-hmm. um, whose work I really like, uh, but uh, about sort of the legacy of this movie and um, how it's remembered. Because I guess when this movie came out, it was not popular with its target audience, mm. nor which I feel like is a very Gen X thing of like, fuck you, don't make a corporate movie about me, you know. So like, whatever, I get it. But how Helen Childress has like kind of been left out of the narrative even like it just feels like a very Hollywoody story mm-hmm. where studios were like okay Gen X like they're now viable consumers or whatever by the early 90s and we want to have a like generation defining studio movie because there had been a couple of indie movies that had done well there was a um a Richard Linkletter movie that I've never seen <laughs> that, right. but like they were like, okay, there's an audience for this. Let's do a studio version of it. Mm-hmm. So they bring in this young writer, like Helen Childress is, is Laney in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. which she's very much admitted to. Mm-hmm. And so she's like being given $500 a week to write this movie. Laney makes $400 a week. She's pulling from her own experiences and her own friends. Mm -hmm. But by 2019, she wasn't even invited to the 25-year reunion of this movie. Like, it got swallowed whole by Hollywood. And, like, I, I mean, I don't know, like, whatever. I can't make a character judgment on Ben Stiller based on this but it seems like this is more remembered as like Ben Stiller's first directed movie Mm -hmm. and not like Helen Childress's experiences committed to film she also has not gotten a script produced since which feels relevant Um, I just wanted to share a quick quote from her from 2019 also to tie it back to the love triangle, that was Ben Stiller's suggestion and idea. Yes. Helen Childress's early versions of the script gave fuller pictures of all, I guess, four main characters' lives. So there was more Steve Zahn, there was more Janine Garofalo. Mm-hmm. But Ben Stiller was like, let's keep it focused on the relationship, which is what yeah. we all have hated the most. Interestingly, <laughs> the note from the male director. Uh-huh. <laughs> but um, yeah, she 
said, um, Helen Childress said in 2019, quote, I have worked consistently and constantly for 29 years. Um, They estimated she's written 40 screenplays since reality bites mm-hmm. um she says of the handful she wrote on spec half were sold or optioned most of them feature female protagonists in all sincerity i think that was a problem um which is i mean mm-hmm. 1994 to 2019 is a stretch we've well covered and so that is definitely a thing so yeah and and to be clear so she she went for like two decades or slightly more without like mm-hmm. any writing credits. So if you look at her IMDb, she does have some writing credits from like, I think 2016 and beyond, I think for mostly television. Mm-hmm. But yeah, she made this movie that ended up being this like cult classic. Like people still ride for this movie, but Ben Stiller hasn't had trouble directing more movies. Right. And she, yeah, she's not given the credit where credit is due for like telling her own story. And for example, like the, I'm also pulling this from that Atlantic piece, but um, the iconic My Sharona dancing at the gas station scene mm. is like one of the producers of this movie, Michael Schamberg credited that scene to Ben Stiller entirely. He's like, yeah, that was Ben Stiller's idea. But Helen Childress was like, um, hello, I wrote that into the screenplay. In the script. <laughs> so how, in what way was it his idea? It wasn't. It was just this male producer failing to give the screenwriter, Helen, her due credit for writing that scene into the movie. And then Typical. when that was pointed out, this guy Schamberg was like, oops, uh, yeah, I guess she does. And then he said something like, so she deserves credit for guiding Ben's direction. Oh, my I, God. And then he says, I think Dude. the reason that I mistakenly gave Ben all the credit was that he was determined to give this feature film his feature film directorial debut, a strong visual style. So the guy can't even like, sure, but like, what does that have to do with? Like, it's again, bare minimum shit. Like, Oh, he directed the script. Like that's, that's his job. She wrote the scene. Like it's her. Yeah. She, but, oh, God. so yeah, it's just, all of this is very indicative of the way that women in Hollywood uh, are often, erased from the narrative forgotten about ignored not given due credit all of that stuff all that to say also this movie is produced by danny devito just wanted to throw that out there (laughs) danny i don't have any more information than that uh but (laughs) to bring it back to the love triangle focusing on the love triangle was very much a ben stiller note Mm -hmm. and it's the thing that we that bothered us the most in that atlantic piece they do talk a little bit about michael in a way that i thought was interesting Mm -hmm. where like that character it seems like went through a lot of different drafts and ben stiller wasn't originally supposed to play the character and then eventually he's like oh i can pull from my own experience as you know like not even to insult it but like you know as like a working sellout basically (laughs) to you know kind of flesh out this character and like i feel like i can relate with some of these moral dilemmas Mm -hmm. and I guess that he and Helen Childress would improvise as the two characters to like figure out what that relationship was which I thought was uh, kind of a fun way to write I'm sure that that's part of the reason why 
Michael does come out as a more sympathetic character than if he was just written as like, this is the guy you don't want to end up with. This is Mr. Business. This is Mr. Evil. Right. Uh, I'm seeing, not to bring up Titanic again, but what choice do I have? I mean, I mean, <laughs> I think it would have been, yeah, kind of an easier or like a, maybe a lazier choice to have like the Ben Stiller character be like Cal Hockley. Mm-hmm. Right. And then you have yeah. your like Ethan Hawke being more of the, Jack Dawson, who is artsy and poor and who isn't some cog in the capitalist machine. Like the boyfriend at the beginning of every Lifetime movie where like, this woman is, uptight woman is dating like a guy who only cares about his job and she needs to date someone who is free and wants to save this Christmas tree farm or whatever. <laughs> she needs to move back home and start a Christmas tree farm and that's, uh, and, and go to church more while you're at it. That's a more respectable outcome for a woman. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, just to put a, I guess, a button on the love triangle thing. It feels like such a tropey choice to have a woman be in this like hetero love triangle where she has to pick one or the other and the option of like not picking one of them isn't presented and then ultimately she picks the worst option of the two guys because again both aren't great options but at least Michael is nice to her and Troy again Troy is such an asshole and it just like kind of sends this message that so many movies and, and so much media has delivered to audience which is that oh, yeah, a man can treat a woman like shit uh, and he doesn't have to apologize for it and she will still pick him for reasons unclear. Yeah, I personally blame the studio executives for that. I feel comfortable blaming the studio executives Mm -hmm. for perpetuating that because it just feels like very 90s Hollywood studio notes in general because it sounds like Helen Child just wanted to take it in a totally different direction that would have allowed you to explore these side characters who I think are like really interesting and there's a lot like the you do get a fair amount with Lelena and um, and Vicky and their friendship but like I just like I wanted to see more of that because there's so I was trying to think of other friendships that it's like it's a loving supportive friendship that is constantly challenged by like class issues Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is like something I I, you don't really see in movies very often I was like I'm you know I want to see the version of this movie that's more focused on that I want to see the version of this movie where you know our only (laughs) openly queer character gets uh more than like mentioning three quarters through the the movie by the way Mm -hmm. I'm coming out I mean great but you know you just don't get a lot where's where's my zon yeah Yeah. and and I think the point that you make about fleshing out those those side characters more, I think is so apt, especially with somebody like Vicky, because, you know, they allude to the fact that Vicky is obsessed with like 70s pop culture. And so if she's, you know, just graduated from college, that's probably her childhood. So are we supposed to under, are we supposed to like, what's going on there that she is someone who is a, you know, sexual libertine, but is perhaps obsessed with the, you know, idyllic childhood of her youth. Like, I feel like there's a, a draft of the movie that ma- that flushes that out. But in the mm-hmm. in the version that we mm-hmm. see, we're left to connect these dots that are not really connected for us in ways that I think just don't really work. Right. It's confusing. Yeah. It's like, I would love to know why she's so fixated on disc. And I, Bridget, you're probably right that it's just like a childhood nostalgia thing but we just don't even get I didn't even think that yeah that thread is never really 
connected. connected. Yeah. And in that, fr- I mean, I guess one thing I did like is that, like, much like us and and I probably every generation ever because we're never as special as we think we are. Um, I did like how these characters are constantly trying to like contextualize their own experience using pop culture mm-hmm. where even when Vicky's talking about her stress about waiting for to find out if she is HIV positive or negative, which I thought was I mean, I uh, wasn't expecting that to be tackled within this movie. And I thought it was pretty tastefully and thoughtfully done. Mm. Um, but the the way that she explains her anxiety is like imagining herself as a character on Melrose Place and right. like, but like the way that it's presented isn't condescending it doesn't make her seem silly or like unintelligent it's like oh yeah that's like not only are you worried about potentially being very sick like also it I feel like that in that like simple exchange she's describing how she thinks the world will perceive her if mm-hmm. the results come back a certain way because pop culture trains you how to see the world in so many ways and right like moments like that I was like that is awesome you never get stuff like that that's interesting I have mixed feelings about the way the movie handles HIV and AIDS um the movie seems to be quite obsessed with it number one there are several references and like sometimes kind of like offhand jokes made about it that or like characters will make an offhand comment or joke about HIV and AIDS and then the kind of main conflict that the Vicky characters is dealing with is that she is worried that she might be positive for HIV and so she goes to get tested and this is based on her having you know multiple sexual partners she has a little book like a a sex diary it seems where she like writes down the names and the dates of the people she had sex with she doesn't always remember their names i used to do that based on this movie like (laughs) because i saw this movie when i was a virgin and when i started having sex i was like oh you're supposed to keep a diary (laughs) i don't do it anymore but in my early days of being sexual that's what Mm -hmm. i did (laughs) i love it it could be a helpful tool i feel like but anyway you never know so she gets tested. She's waiting on the results. Um, prior to her getting the results, she, you know, expresses a lot of concern about, you know, yeah, the way she might be perceived or what her life might be like if she is HIV positive. I just felt that, okay, for this to be an issue that a hetero cis woman is dealing with when... HIV and AIDS is something that largely affected the queer community. It just feels like a weird erasure of that. And obviously I'm not saying that hetero people cannot become HIV positive and and have AIDS, but it's an issue that was famously not handled well because it disproportionately affected the queer community. And, you know, like Mm. Reagan and, and other administrations and institutions didn't give a shit about the queer community. So it was just like very mishandled. Basically every administration. (laughs) Right. So for a straight character to have a storyline where she's concerned about this, it just felt kind of maybe indicative of that erasure. But I was like, well, what's the alternative to have the one queer character in the movie be concerned about that? I wouldn't want that either. I mean, I think that that then you could really easily skew into tragedy porn mm-hmm. and, and my understanding mm-hmm. is that um Helen Childress is not a queer writer and so it's like would it have been her place I I also was not sure I mean I I wasn't surprised that this movie 
had a preoccupation with the AIDS epidemic because it was started being written in 1990. Like, right. it, it makes total sense to me that these, this would be something that these characters would realistically be talking and thinking about. Sure. But, I mean, yeah, I, I, I wasn't quite sure where to place it. I thought it was, like, interesting that they tackled the subject at all. I think it would have been a really easy issue that this group of friends would have been thinking about to erase from a major studio movie mm-hmm. I don't know yeah I, I I guess it's like with this specific writer in this specific movie yeah I mean I wouldn't have preferred it if the Steve Zahn character was if his whole storyline was defined by that right but then I guess that yes. that's also the thing with having only one queer character in your movie like it's, yeah I, I don't know it it didn't bother me that much but mm-hmm. also I, I'm completely open to that story point not being, yeah. Yeah, curious what, if any listeners have any insight on that. Um, can we talk about the Steve Zahn character, Sammy? Let's talk about Zahn, baby. <laughs> That's got to be a new segment on the show where you go oh. along and then talk about the Steve Zahn intersections. <laughs> okay, so it didn't even register with me that he is a queer character for a while which yeah does a few things it signals to me that he is just allowed to be a queer character without that being like the first or defining thing you know about him so his queerness is normalized in the story and in the world that he occupies i also didn't notice any stereotypes of gay men being used with his character but also He's kind of barely in the movie. Yeah. He's the only character of the friend group that we see, that we never see with a romantic or sexual partner, except there's maybe like one quick little scene where Sammy's in a diner with a guy named Lance. Yeah. He's a, he, and he does introduce him as his boyfriend. Oh, okay. I I missed that. Okay. But that's such a quick throwaway moment. And clearly because I missed that part. I missed it too. So the fact that he, like, He's just not allowed to have any kind of like romantic subplot the way that other characters, that's kind of like the focus of the movie. Right. I did really like the scene where you see him and Vicky kind of like doing this bit where they're (laughs) rehearsing him coming out to his family. It's cute. cute. And then you see the aftermath of him coming out to his family and they did not receive the information well. They don't seem to be supportive and you see how that affects him. You, you see him talking about, you know, the reasons that he has chosen to be celibate, that he, you know, hadn't been honest with himself about who he is. And you just like, you see a lot of his kind of him expressing his inner struggles in, in a way that a lot of movies, especially from that era, never bothered to do or just like never handled well. So I thought that was, is queer representation in a movie at a time where there was very little on-screen queer representation and when it was there it was usually really grossly mishandled this representation isn't necessarily the best again his character is kind of the of the four friends like he has the least screen time and i I think it's it Helen Childress did indicate that she wrote many versions of this script where that wasn't the case. So again, it's like a studio issue of like, well, sure, we can have an openly gay character, but not too much. Mm -hmm. Where and, And this also feels like an era where, I mean, even going 
back to rent of like queer characters are or like the movie Philadelphia which I've never mm-hmm. seen but I know what happens in it where yeah. you're like okay we could have gay characters on screen but only if the worst possible thing happens to them yeah. and so it's like we're not interested at this point in pop culture of like just exploring a queer person's day-to-day life, life. in the way that this movie seems to be interested in but then the studio doesn't let you go all the way of just like mm-hmm. letting a gay man be a person right. <laughs> who like and Steve's on such a sweetie where oh he's his like first line where he's like such a he's just like I don't know I want a career <laughs> like, <laughs> oh Mr. Nice Mr. Nice <laughs> yeah um let's take another break and then we will be right back this is it your moment This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu Me Focus Features presents Back to Black I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles Experience the music and her story Know this I ain't no Spice Girl Like never before That's my daughter That's my Amy On the big screen I want to be remembered just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. I wanted to go back a little bit to the... uh, So this is a very white middle to upper middle class uh i think maybe spans because the middle class existed when this movie came out which is kind of like (laughs) confusing to navigate right Um, i think that i mean obviously they're all 
young white people who have done some college. And it seems like Ethan Hawke didn't finish college, not because it was financially struggling, but like because it was like a that was his ideological preference. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't like he had to drop out because he couldn't afford it. Right. So as far as class goes, I think it's like interesting and telling that this is like hailed as the Gen X movie, even if Gen X audiences didn't like it at the time. And it's still so centered on the white middle to upper middle class mm-hmm. experience. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of like social issues that get brought up in the movie that the characters talk about. Like so many movies ignore societal ills that are affecting, you know, people across the globe. But they're talking about like the energy crisis and the environment. They're talking about class and wages and, and and workers rights they talk about world hunger like these things get brought up and the movie's largely about a young woman who's like optimistic and she wants to make a difference in the world and she wants to try to help fix some of these societal ills but then she ultimately like doesn't really do anything and she just like kind of marinates in her privilege and makes a documentary about her friends which is what happens in rent Uh, (laughs) also she acts like working retail after college is the worst is like the worst thing that like everybody fucking works retail after college it is not that like she makes it seem like it's the worst thing in the world okay so i had so many feelings about that plot point and that was another thing where it's like that to me was like what was really interesting about like the tension between vicky and Lelena is like something that does genuinely suck about Lelena is she like wants to have her like cool burnout friends but she always there is an element to her character where she always has to view herself as a little bit above them Mm -hmm. which is complicated because like there are things she says them like you're being an asshole I know you're technically correct where especially Troy Troy is not paying rent he refuses (laughs) to look for work like he's just being he is like actively mooching off of her and then negging her all the time, which Mm -hmm. is like, go fuck yourself. (laughs) Situation's very different with Vicky. I feel like it's telling that the only two people who live in this four person apartment are the two women. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think that Sammy has a job for most of the movie. Yeah. Also, I don't think he lives. Does he live there? I think he lives somewhere else, but I don't know. Does he live somewhere else? He lives somewhere else. Because at one point he comes in and um, Winona Ryder's like, what are you even doing here? You don't live here. Yeah, but she says that to Troy too. And he does. Oh, that's true. And they they call it the maxi pad, which leads me to believe that it's a house where only women live. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) I don't know. I might be reading too much into that. (laughs) No, I like that. But like with Vicky, I mean, like she, I don't know. Like there is kind of this. I wish that we could have explored it more because it's like Lelena is, you know, trying to like live life on her own terms while being, while actively denying her own privilege, but, you know, capitalizing on her own privilege when it suits her where Vicky, it seems like she's from the lower middle class, baby. It seems like she doesn't have a safety net in the way that Lelena does. Mm-hmm. And she's working at the gap. She becomes a manager. She's like taking pride in her work in a way that I thought was like really cool. Like mm-hmm. she was just like, Oh, you know, that sort of shy, like I feel like a corporate sellout, but I'm also like, I've never taken pride in my work before. And like, that's mm-hmm. a cool feeling. And I, that was like a cool element to that character. And then Lelena thinking she's a little too good for it. And, and, and like it, openly expressing that to Vicky and Vicky being like, well, fuck you, you elitist prick. <laughs> like, there, yeah. there's, there's like a couple different times in the movie where someone calls another character out 
and you're like, yeah, good for you. And then it's just kind of dropped. And then we cut to the next scene and everyone's yes. getting along again. Yeah. Yeah. With, with that yeah. gap thing in particular, when Lalana is thinks that she's high and mighty, she's like, I'm not going to work at the gap for Christ's sake. But then when she's at her low moment, when she's on the couch, chain smoking, racking up money to the psychic mm-hmm. hotline, she's like, oh, you think you're hot shit because you work at the gap. Like, it's interesting how for her, the gap is like, beneath her but then also she feels like it's being lorded over her later (laughs) right Mm -hmm. oh lelena so yeah i wish that vicky we just got a little more vicky context but i do like the the peaks you have into her life of like i thought it was sweet that her parents uh love each other but she's very grossed out by their relationship i'm like oh good for you vicky good for you your parents love each other oh i didn't read that that way at all i read it is that they don't like each other and they like the the romance is completely dead we shit with the door open see i think because that's how dead the romance i think shitting i think that you can have romance and shit with the door open i agree the two are not mutually (laughs) exclusive but i think that's a very naive take on vicky's part it's like well i think maybe they're they're in super love because you if you can see someone take a shit and still be like I, I want to love you. Fuck you. Fuck. Like, <laughs> let's smooch and frick. Yeah. Um. So I uh, mentioned this, but so as Lelena is like trying to sort out her money troubles and trying to get another job after she kind of like puts down working at the Gap, she then goes to her mom for a loan and her mom suggests, well, why don't you work at a fast food restaurant? Mm-hmm. This is the scene where the R word is just oh. casually thrown around by multiple several characters. Yeah. yeah, several characters. Yeah, and not just in this scene. Other, it gets it gets said other times, and Lelena dismisses a, a job at a fast food restaurant, citing a very ableist reason. I do I do appreciate that the movie kind of makes a point to show that a job at a fast food restaurant is harder and takes more skills right she genuinely can't hack it (laughs) she cannot she cannot add 45 and 85 together quickly or whatever the numbers were because the movie does have little moments of commentary like that like kind of class commentary and i think it has a lot of good moments yeah in terms of yeah there's a scene that seems to be satirizing networks like mtv and the entertainment of that era where Lelaney's watching a show and i forget what it's called but it's this woman she's like the host of this show it's like a fashion Is show it the fashion show oh it's meant yeah. to be house of style did y'all watch that oh no, no i don't know what oh that my is. god mtv i might be older than y'all but it's it's clearly <laughs> meant to be mtv's house of style cindy crawford okay. got her start on that show like it was oh, like no way it was i don't fact check that but i think so it was like uh-huh. in the 90s it was mtv's fashion and it was always kind of like edgy hip-hop fashion but yeah it was their fashion show okay so so what happens in this like you know this like kind of spoof version of that on the in your face network is it's this woman she's the host of this show and she's like today we're in i think they're in compton and she's like we're in compton (laughs) and you can buy this this uh, bandana, it's got red for Crips and blue for Bloods, or I, I don't even know if I have the colors right. And she's like, and it's only $75. <laughs> yeah, and it's made by Donna Karen. Yes. Famously a bougie white woman. It's, I actually love that comment. It's like, the movie does try to do some 90s commentary of like, that was the vibe of the 90s, like mm-hmm. corporations and white rich people co-opting like black folks and like Latino folks and like like working class like fashion and like Mm -hmm. making it a thousand dollars and then selling it back to people 
Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I thought that like, especially for some reason, like the TV stuff, especially I thought was really, really effective with the, I mean, even with the Frasier's dad show where it was very clearly like parodying a lot of daytime TV where it was like, mm-hmm. you know, exploitative thing and tragic thing where, it, you know, he, he's like, today we have this amazing child and, and someone with Alzheimer's disease. And you're just like, it's, mm-hmm. that is clear, like what they're trying to do. And then it, I, I also thought it was like interesting the how, Winona Ryder is like duped by a TV psychic and like that that was just a little um, montage of like predatory TV scams of the 1990s because it was like TV college uh, TV psychics and like Mm -hmm. just little ways that the culture of this time preyed on desperation and loneliness which is like there's a different generational reboot of how to prey on desperation and loneliness and I I thought it was like kind of a fun comment yeah on it oh the tv psychic scene has my favorite line of the movie where when her roommate is coming to talk to her about the phone bill over the phone the tv psychic is like laney i sense that you're in great danger danger is coming (laughs) (laughs) and then and then janine groffalo is like we have a $400 phone bill. What the fuck? It's from this 900 number. And then you just see Winona Ryder like very slowly hanging up the phone. <laughs> that, that was funny. That's comedy. I thought it was good. Yeah. Like it, it's like part of the reason that the ending to this movie bumps me out so much is I feel like there's so many like strong threads of like ways this movie could have gone characters. They could have expanded on more topics. They could have taken a little further. Cause it's like with Troy and Lainey like they're both shitty in their ways Troy is by far worse and Mm -hmm. I would hope that if Lainey had done what I wanted her to do at the end and just like got her shit together and figured out who she was as a person and worked a retail job and wasn't a total snob Mm -hmm. I'm sure that these would be issues that hopefully would course correct later in her life Troy may be permanently broken but like (laughs) how Troy's central like it feels like what they're trying to ask with that character. I don't know. Let me know what you think. Cause I was like, it seems like Troy is trying to do the thing where he's like saying something valid, but his methods are shitty and like, don't make any difference for anything where it's like, he wants to exist outside of capitalism. He resents capitalism. He resents that you are expected, you know, certain things are expected of you to exist in a society and be, considered someone worthy of respect Mm -hmm. a valid question and like fair but like he sucks and (laughs) like he's useless and he's mean and then in the end he's kind of like rewarded by getting everything he ever wanted so and and hmm. why i mean because he's a white guy who had a safety net the whole time that's why yeah Uh, and like at one point it's like a throwaway thing but I think that Lelena's dad set up a cushy job interview for Troy that yeah. he didn't go to. And I think he didn't go to it because he was like hanging out with her. Um, I, might, I, I think that like his, her dad definitely is like, I set up a job interview and he couldn't even bother to show up. Right. And so you're right that it's, it's as someone who is a former like slacker and knew a lot of like slacker types that were anti-capitalist. It's really easy to be that way when you have a safety net, when people are looking out for you and someone can make a call and get you a job. And I think Troy is very good at presenting his his rejection of all that stuff ideologically on the outside, but not so good at acknowledging what he actually has access to, which is not nothing. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And, and it's like Troy's life 
I mean, his life would become so much more difficult if Lainey and Vicky weren't constantly doing what he's yelling at them for all the time, which is working so that they all have a place to live, which Troy is not contributing to and is, in fact, actively hostile to them for, like, working so that he has somewhere to yell at them at. Like, it's just, it's so messy. And it's like the movie seems to know that, but then the ending... I, it's it's wild. It's wild. I also find it fascinating, and maybe this is some <laughs> irony that the movie loves to talk about. But like the the like paradox of this being a movie about characters who are like, oh my god, selling out is like the worst thing you can do, and like it might be tempting, but ultimately you're a loser if you sell out. But then this was also a <laughs> studio movie and ben stiller said something like it's a strange thing because it was a studio movie about the ideas of commodification and descent or whatever and the idea that it was a universal movie meaning like the movie studio universal uh, a universal movie that was really sort of independent-minded was something that we struggled with so it's like the same studio that released jurassic park the year before mm-hmm. is also re- releasing reality bites and clearly made a bunch of script changes and like all the had all these studio notes and it's probably the reason that Lelaney ends up with Troy at the end because that's kind of like the more like right gritty romantic choice for her to make which I mean I was glad that at least like the major players in this who who worked on this movie all seem aware of that because it's like at some right. point it is just truly like what are you going do like what the like because all of the you know like they're all of the resources are in the hands of big studios like mm-hmm. right what the fuck are you gonna do mm-hmm. and it it's i don't know I, it has, have either of you ever seen slc punk i have not no i have i've seen it many times do you like it um, I liked it when I was in high school. I rewatched it maybe <laughs> yeah. two years ago. I actually thinking about it. I like not to kind of spoil the ending. I don't know if y'all have like a philosophy. Well, no, I was I I wanted to talk about the ending to SLC Punk because I think I like it better. <laughs> yeah, the the ending is great because it's like oh this whole time all of that ideology was BS and you sold out in the end and turns out you just like were a poser like everybody else and that's fine. It's called growing up the end. Like I kind of love that. Yeah, like so. Oh, I, I, the only time I've seen SLC Punk, I was on Molly. Nice. <laughs> but I really loved it. But, but the ending, in spite of me being high out of my mind, the ending really stuck with me as one of the more like, you know, it doesn't feel good to watch, but it is an honest depiction of like, and also it's a Matthew Lillard joint, Caitlin. Oh, I, I've, I'm familiar. I just have yet to see it. And and unlike Reality Bites, it's a true indie movie. It made like $2 <laughs> and it like premiered at Sundance. And, mm-hmm. but, but yeah, like the, the way I, I was sort of wondering if Reality Bites would take that sort of option where it's like, you know, it seems inevitable that this group at least you know two or three out of the four are gonna end up selling out in the way that adults are forced to under capitalism more often than not mm-hmm. but I was wondering how self-aware it's like the, it didn't do it in a very self-aware because even in the like the closing line of the movie Lainey is like it's acknowledging that Lainey has used her privilege to get to where she's at with Troy because it's her dad on the phone right. who you know like all four 
boomer criticism of like, look at this, you know, how they opened the movie with like your revolution, you know, you traded your revolution for shoulder pads. Fair, Mm -hmm. fair criticism. (laughs) But it's like, our characters are well on their way to doing the same fucking thing by the end of the movie, but it's not quite willing to like go there and admit it in a way that SLC punk was like, yeah, Lillard's a suit now. He's uh, he he just got he goes the sh- to law school. He went to law school. <laughs> he went to play Shaggy. He's a corporate stooge. <laughs> I mean, Lillard's taking that Scooby money. <laughs> can't even blame. I, it, and it's funny, like we're like okay. So in the, if in the universe of the film, nobody, only certain people are allowed to sell out. If the if the clock spins five years later, like are we to believe that Troy is still underemployed and like? blowing off job interviews and sort of intentionally getting fired. And Elena is like, like certainly they would have, like you would have to get a job at some point. Like that's life. And so life is unsustainable. Right. Otherwise. Yeah. Right. It's like, he's not going you know, to, if there's one person who's not going to single-handedly dismantle American capitalism, it's Troy from <laughs> reality bites. Like he's got to have to do something at some point. Mm-hmm. And I feel like such a, like a mom saying that where I'm like, get your life together, young man. But <laughs> You know what Start I bet he does? Direct he starts a podcast. Like, oh, oh, you know he starts a podcast and <laughs> we're a part of the problem. <laughs> yeah, you think Troy from Reality Bites wouldn't be fucking podcasting in 2022? Ooh, <laughs> oh, he's he got, he's probably got two podcasts. He has, oh, you know who he is? I know exactly who he is. He is like the leftist podcaster who is all like, oh, like class solidarity, but makes $300,000 a year via Patreon, but you would never know it because he talks about like class warfare every week in the podcast. That's who he never would Never volunteered a week in his life. Yeah. yeah. Just oh, like, absolutely. <laughs> no, no. Oh, uh, look, wow. we're all a bunch of fucking sellouts. <laughs> we're a feminist podcast on the iHeartRadio network. At the end of the day, if it's like, well, shit. Well, fuck. <laughs> we're the end of SLC punk. <laughs> Um, okay. Yeah, does anyone have anything else they want to talk about? Uh, that's everything I had. I think that might have been it. Yeah, same. Does this movie pass the Bechtel test? It does. Yeah, we've got we've got some conversations. We've got some various combinations. It's a lot of Lelaney and Vicky, I think, is most of the Bechtel test passing convos. Mm-hmm. But what about that nipple scale? The famous flawless nipple scale where we rate the movie on a scale of zero to five nipples based on examining the movie through an intersectional feminist lens. Mm -hmm. I feel like it's maybe like a two or a two and a half, just one of those kind of split down the middle ones, or maybe it's less than that. Let me talk through this. Um, I appreciate that this is a movie like written by a woman writing about her own experiences. It's coming from a pretty privileged place because at least the the characters, it's like, yeah, they're broke, but they're broke in the way that white college graduates from supportive middle-class families working entry-level jobs yeah, are broke. Broke, not poor. Right. Mm. Yeah. So it just feels gross to make a movie where things like, Money and labor and socioeconomic class are major themes of the movie, but the movie only features educated middle-class white people. Um, I do not like that the movie is predicated on which of these two guys is she going to choose because she has to pick one because hetero romance must prevail. 
And then she picks the guy who has been actively cruel to her throughout the entire movie. I hate that for her. Um, There are some things I do like. Um, There's some interesting satire. There is a queer character whose queerness is normalized within the story, even though that character gets the least amount of screen time in this version of the story, at least. Um, But it's, you know, queer representation that was, I would say, generally more positive than you would tend to find in this era. Um, And yeah, as I I think I like trailed off, but it's a, a woman writing this screenplay about her life, about her experiences and her relationships seems like it got studio notes to death almost uh 70 different drafts kind of thing but um i don't know it's it's uh have i come to any conclusion no i'm gonna give it two nipples uh i'll give one to winona Ryder because i do love winona and i'll give the other nipple to screenwriter helen childress who again has been kind of like left out of the conversation about this movie and like isn't given credit where credit is due Mm. yeah so there you have it uh i'm gonna go two and a half on this one maybe maybe i'm tempted to do three but i i the 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 centering of the relationship is just like so frustrating that i guess I'm going to do two and a half. Um, again, yes, like this is yet another, you know, quote unquote, generation defining movie that solely focuses on, you know, middle class uh, cis white people. I do appreciate that there is some different class backgrounds and discussion of class. I feel like most movies like this just like or most, you know, coming of age movies, class exists in a complete and total void. So at mm-hmm. least that's not the case. Um this movie asks a lot of interesting questions. I think that, you know, the answers are really complicated because we also, like, our generation is not going to have the answers. And, uh, you know, Gen Z, best of luck. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But And then there's no more generations. Uh, so ultimately, yeah, I, I think that this movie asks a lot of interesting questions. It challenged me in some ways. It frustrated me in others. Yeah. And uh, it made me want to rewatch SLC Punk. Mm-hmm. Um but I do appreciate that this movie um, is, you know, written by a woman who has lived out a similar experience. Um, I think that her career since is very indicative of how disposable um, women creatives can be in Hollywood, especially during this era. I'm glad that there has been some motion um, against that since. It doesn't mm-hmm. seem to be something that happens quite as much. And that there are a lot of women in high positions in this production. You have a woman editor. You have a woman writer. You have a woman producer. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I I don't know. It this this honestly, I've, this movie was like challenging. Yeah. For for me, and uh, you know, being an adult sellout is fucking embarrassing, and it's also, um, unfortunately, kind of a part of uh being an American, and mm. it uh. I guess that's all I have to say about it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I'll, I'll go two and a half and I'm giving them all to Helen because. Um, nice. It's ridiculous that. Justice for Helen. Ben Stiller's getting credit for shit she did. Yeah. Yeah. Bridget. Yeah. I'm going. First of all, I love that we're just explicitly identifying as adult sellouts. And <laughs> this feminist adult sellout is going two and a half nipples. And I completely agree. <laughs> mostly for Helen Childress. Like justice for her. I had no idea about the ways that she was sort of written out of her own experience. And Mm -hmm. that just sucks that this is a movie about her life that is so 
accredited to Ben Stiller, a man, that she just gets written out of it. Like, I was Googling mm-hmm. pictures. It was difficult to even find pictures of her with the cast. And, like, this was her story. So yeah. most of those nipples are going to her. Also, Janine Garofalo. I have a soft spot for a Janine yeah, Garofalo yeah. supporting casting. Yeah. And this movie, I, I once loved it as a youth. Watching it as an adult, it's. I agree, it's challenging. But, yeah, I, I, I like a movie that makes an attempt to show queerness in the 90s in a way that it's not so traumatic and Steve Zahn doesn't die or something like I, yeah. I, guess, I think for the time I'm going to go mm-hmm. two and a half fair yeah Bridget thank you so much for joining us yes thank you for returning come back anytime oh it's always a blast anytime y'all gonna, y'all about to get sick of me <laughs> impossible can't happen won't happen tell us all about your your new show on cool zone oh yes yeah. so internet hate machine is an exploration of kind of an unpleasant topic which is the online harassment of women specifically black women but women of color in general and how i believe that is connected to our current sort of political and social hellscape i guess i'll i'll, I'll say uh, mm-hmm. and so yeah it's it's but it's I swear it's not dark. It's not as dark as it sounds. Uh, Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's an exploration of the ways that all of these things online, the way that black women have been treated, have gotten us to a place where those same tactics and those same ills impact all of us and really make it hard for us to have a functioning democracy. So if that sounds like something that you're interested in exploring, please check it out. Uh, The new season or the first season drops October 26th. Nice. Ah, so excited. Thank you, thank you so much for for coming back. Uh, we'll be we'll be plugging the hell out of the show. Mm-hmm. And uh, anything else you want to plug as far as your social media handles? Yeah, you can follow me on Instagram at Bridget Marie in DC or on Twitter at Bridget Marie. And I have my own long running pod- oh, long running two years <laughs> podcast hey, on iHeartRadio. Podcast world. That's oh, I'm I'm proudly claiming that's a long time. Two years. <laughs> that's a long time. Uh, yeah. Called there are no girls on the internet. Please check it out. Yay! Amazing. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Bechtelcast. You can subscribe to our Matreon at mm-hmm. patreon.com slash Bechtelcast. It is $5 a month and it gets you two bonus episodes every month plus the entire back catalog of bonus episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can also get our merch at tpublic.com slash the Bechtelcast. This is such a funny way to end the episode after Reality Bites or <laughs> <laughs> we're like... <laughs> In conclusion, capitalism. Buy our stuff. In conclusion, give us $5 a month (laughs) and uh, support us on Hellscape social media platforms that are (laughs) are actively ruining the world. Um, You know, or we can just go fuck ourselves, whatever you want. Uh, On Mm. that note, uh, let's go watch Frasier's dad's TV show. Honestly, I would watch it if I had pneumonia. Uh, Yeah, let's let's do it. (laughs) Okay, bye. Bye. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one listen to a really good cry with radhi devlukia on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts